Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Well, hello. I'm Catherine May. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to the wintering sessions. <laughs> I think this is my most dramatic entrance yet. I'm standing outside in my back garden and it's raining a little, but it's also thundering and lightning. And I'm one of those people who loves thunder and lightning. I love the drama. I love the way it kind of takes over. When it's thundering, you can't do anything else. You have to engage with the thunder. I also love the sound around it. I love the sound of rain in trees and all the leaves rustling and the way that you can almost hear the garden drinking it up at this time of year. I don't know why people don't like rain more, honestly. It's one of my favourite things. In fact, and I'm going to attempt a really lame segue here, you might call it a delight. This week I've interviewed Ross Gay, who talks so beautifully about delight what he expresses so perfectly is this really quite 
delicate emotion of just being pleased by something. And it doesn't have to be a demonstrative thing. It's normally a point of contact for him, a way that he's making a connection with the people around him. Sorry, I have to stop here because another delight has landed in my garden. A little robin who seems to be really friendly this year and who comes to see me every day at the moment. I was in the kitchen yesterday and I was doing the washing up and I suddenly looked through the window and there was his little face pressed right against the glass and I screamed. (laughs) I feel a bit bad about that now. Sorry, anyway, Ross Gay, just as delightful as the robin. And I think reading his book, The Book of Delights, makes you really think about the delights in your own life and to engage with it is to start to notice the things that delight you, that just raise a smile. Anyway, I will leave you to hear the conversation, but I enjoyed talking to him so much and not least, as I do mention a few times, because he's the first man on my podcast. I'll see you all in a bit. So, Ross, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. Thank you so much for joining me. I've just told you this story, but I'm going to tell it again out loud because as listeners may notice, you are my first ever male guest, which is quite the moment, I think. Probably not for you, but for me. (laughs) Um, And uh, it was never my intention not to ever talk to men. But I just got to the point where I realised I'd only spoken to women And then it became like a thing that I couldn't get through, which is probably the wrong way to approach it. But then I began to think, right, I have to have the absolutely perfect male first guest. And then after that, it'll be easy. And according to my listeners, you are it. So that's kind of a nice thing to be, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an accolade. That's like getting an Oscar or something (laughs) on a very small scale. (laughs) But I was thinking about, uh, you know, like, what was it that made people feel like the perfect person to come into this space? And I think it's not just because you talk about delight in and of itself. I think it's because you talk about delight as a facet of a kind of complicated and often difficult and often dreadful life. And that's the fit, I think. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's dig into some of that anyway. Delight is, I don't know when I, when I listen to your, I listen to your book on audiobook um, and I've just reread it this morning actually to refresh my memory. And I, I found again, I couldn't put it down. Like when I was listening to the audiobook, I kept driving around in circles so I could keep listening for longer, (laughs) 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 which is such a, you know, because it's, because actually it's not often we think about those beautiful moments in life in in really simple terms can you unpack what you mean by delights what like what are the delights you think about yeah it's such a good question and it's a question you know so it's fun because i'm writing uh like book two i'm calling it book two lights so it's it's been five years since i wrote the first book i wrote august 1st 2016 to august 1st 2017 so august 1st of last year i started Mm. A new one. So I'm kind of rethinking it. And I realize <laughs> people often ask me what I what I mean by delight or what I, you know, kind of to define it. And I realize yeah. I'm like, 
know that I have a great definition, but the more I write, um, the more I think about it, the more I, I am kind of inclined to think that it has something to do with surprise mm. or realizing something that you didn't realize before. You may have been aware of it, but you maybe haven't been aware of it necessarily. And then, so, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, I was walking the other day and I saw these kids playing tag and I felt so glad <laughs> playing tag. And I thought, oh, you know, like maybe because I'm in this kind of whatever you call it, the light practice of like sort of articulating the thing that makes me feel that thing that, mm. for the, that we're calling delight. But I noticed it, I recognized it, and I thought, oh, tag, what a great game. Like, I love that game. <laughs> and I love the fact that seeing these children playing this game without any adults around. It's just like, yeah. you know, and yeah. then from there, it's like the kind of reverie of like those simple games that, you know, we, we just know how to do. And, but there is definitely something about surprise, about something being made mm. sort of available to us that prior to the sort of occasioning event, whatever, the hummingbird, you know, boom, then you're like, whoa, hummingbird. <laughs> I just, it delights me that you live in a place with hummingbirds. Like I've never seen a hummingbird. Yeah. I was very excited yeah. by your hummingbirds. They're delightful. They're, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and praying mantises too. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. We have such boring insects compared to you. I don't know. I just, I'm really disappointed in my insect life now. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, 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 but actually, and that's, a, that's actually a great point too. Like, you know, I was visiting this, um, this school here and this kid said to me, I read a couple of these delights and this kid said to me, you seem like you have a really eventful life. And I said, I said, I think I pay very close attention. I describe my life. I pay attention to my life, which is my way of saying, even those boring insects over there, I bet if you got close enough, it'd be like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I also think that like, that just makes me think that it's both um, that sort of surprise, but it's the kind of surprise that's available almost any time you look close enough, you know? Mm. So it's unexpected, but I think, there is like a childlike thread in your delights, not necessarily as, you know, closely connected as playing tag, but yeah. there's something about fresh eyes and, and seeing things anew. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Surprise. Mm. Surprise. Mm. Yeah. Seeing stuff anew. I think that's sort of the, yeah, I think that's probably also part of what's, well, what's moving to me about, you know, thinking about these things or reading them when I write them or writing them is that, I realize how often I'm sort of walking through the world with a kind of, what would you call it? Like just not really paying attention. Mm. Uh, the way, like part of one of the qualities, I think one of the sad qualities of growing up is that we cease paying attention. We kind of got it down, you know? And then, so, which is, you know, which is why kids take so long to walk down the street. It's like, <laughs> it's, because they're <laughs> yeah. constantly, they're like, what in the world is that thing? You know? Mm. I think about this every morning when my son is brushing his teeth and <laughs> I have to stand over him because otherwise it literally takes an hour. Yeah. And he's like, oh, wow, look at this little blob of toothpaste on the sink. That looks like a Pikachu. And oh, look over there. And it, and it could just go on for ages, like these tiny grains of fascination, which are, I mean, honestly, I, I shouldn't be frustrated with them because they're so beautiful. And it's we need to recapture those a little bit as adults, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Mm. I think probably there's something in there about being a poet as well that trains you into this kind of granularity of exp 
experience? Is that something that you feel about your practice? That's a great question. I think one of the things that I I try to do as a in my poems, like I am very, you know, yeah, that granularity, that's a good word for it. Like I am interested in like very small details, whether it's mm-hmm. details of sound or um, details of syntax, which, you know, to a poem is everything, but, but it can be very sort of like the arrangement of two words can kind of mean everything, of course. But it's also, I'm very interested in like, in poems, I'm interested in, in images, sort of precise ways of depicting images. Um, right. And I think in order to do that, often I spend a lot of time sort of like really looking hard, you know, at what this thing, you know, what what the actual stand of of garlic you know, greens in the wind actually looks like. What does that <laughs> look like? Is it, you know, is it this? Is it that? Is it? And yeah, you know, it's a good question. I, I feel like I've been doing that for a while. So I feel like it maybe lends itself to just like sort of, you know, you know, just like taking time and really trying to really look at something. Yeah. I mean, I, like I didn't always write. I started writing in my kind of mid-late 20s. I always wrote as a child, but I came back to it and I realised that I had always meant to carry on writing, but didn't. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to relearn that level of observation Mm. and that it made me conscious that I'd almost hit a point that I thought I had to stop noticing those small things because it was part of the kind of putting away childhood almost, that, that to be an adult, you had to be almost deliberately more cynical and yeah. jaded and weary with the world and find it all really boring. I mean, that, that's a, that's the terrible thing that being a teenager does to you, I think. It's like mm-hmm. this act of violence against noticing. Totally. And I, totally. I think I've really consciously relearned my noticing actually, but now it it is just elemental to me and I can't stop. But yeah, yeah I it's interesting to think about how absent it can be. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I do think it's, um, yeah, you can see it as like a kind of training into adulthood is that, you know, you put wonder aside and you put enthusiasm, except about very sort of mandated things aside, you know, but for the most part, you, you know, like the kids who, when they're 17 are just like, ah, you know, look at the sunflower, oh my God. Those, you know, this might be like hanging out, but it's a small group, you know? <laughs> But in a way, you know, that's that's really the kid that I'm trying to be, you know, mm. like I'm trying to be like that about the bird songs, about, you know, what my friend is wearing, about the music that I love, about the food that someone has made me. You know, I I'm mm. I'm yeah, I'm trying to be that. Yeah. It's a good way to be. And I think also a lot of your delights are about human connections made, like fleeting ones, just little gestures of, again, it's it's of seeing people in lots of ways, but you often talk about touch, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I did. At some point, I noticed that so often the delights were these examples of very sort of small interactions between people like that you otherwise, you just might not notice, but there were small little interactions between people, you know, like there's one on the, um, there's kids running down the aisle in a plane and, you know, people can't help, but like <laughs> poke this kid in the tummy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, it's remarkable or, you know, the, you know, the, there's all these sort of gestures and, and like you say, touchings and stuff that happen in the book. And it's, I noticed at some point that those 
I was sort of witnessing these moments of care. And then those moments of care made me inclined to be like, hey, did you notice that moment of care? Mm. You know? Mm. And I mean, I'm assuming your book was written before the pandemic, which it must have been mm. if it was five years ago. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe that's one of the things we missed, but maybe we couldn't articulate it was those like casual instances of connection that like, I think that was part of what made life feel so flat was not connecting with strangers on a minute level. I I certainly began to really miss that, just smiling at people while I picked up my coffee or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like fundamental. It's fundamental. Yeah. But I don't know if we realise it's fundamental, actually. It seems so trivial. Even as I'm saying it, it seems so trivial. And I, like, I always talk about myself as like having reclusive tendencies. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I'm probably lying when I say that, because when I really was shut away from other people, I missed people so much. Like I missed their, their randomness, their, their ability to bring randomness into my life and unexpected things and to throw my day off course and and break my plans almost. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, me too. I'm a little bit, it's funny, you wouldn't guess this from the book, but I'm also sort of reclusive. I'm sort of, you know, I can be social and then I kind of retreat, but I, you know, like (laughs) being in company is, is as important as anything in my life, you know, you know, the exchange of the small, loving, you know, almost invisible exchanges between, you know, my, my friends who I just said, it came out of my mouth, my friends at the coffee shop, (laughs) just like that, that simple daily interaction is to me, the fabric, the fabric Mm. of, you know, among the fabrics of life. Yeah. Actually, I, um, I got to interview Cole Arthur Riley a couple of weeks ago And she made this brilliant point, which was that we are so often told that uh, to have like a intellectual or spiritual life, we should retreat from other people and that that happens alone and it only happens in solitude. Mm. But that actually, particularly like her, her sort of black upbringing meant that community was like vital to her spiritual encounter with the world. And I, I kind of thought, yeah, do you know what? I've believed that for a long time as well, that to be clever enough, I have to be isolative almost. Um, and it's not true, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm. So interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk to you about your garden. Oh, please. Um, I, yeah, I can. T- I know. I know from reading you that you'll want to talk about it. But I have to confess up front that I am the world's most hopeless gardener. Like, A friend came round to my house for a drink recently and he was sitting in my garden and he said, I don't know what you do to gardens. (laughs) 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 At the moment, the whole right hand side of my garden is just mud. And I I planted it out like somebody came and and helped me to take down all the trees that were that overgrown. I'd like planted weird plants as usual. Mm -hmm. And he helped me to take them all down because they were all crowding each other out and it was mainly bindweed. And in October, we planted out all new plants. And I was like, is this the right time of year? He was like, absolutely. This is just perfect. They'll just bed down over winter. They're the right plants. Not a single one has survived over winter. And I'm back with bare mud again. I I cannot, I just, I don't know. I am the curse on gardens. You, however, <laughs> are not, right? <laughs> Tell me about your garden. <laughs> 
Well, it's, yeah, it's pretty great. We just, um, it's funny, you know, I told you I'm writing these uh, delights. And um, mm. one of the things that a few years ago, I planted a bunch of uh, sunflowers, big old sunflower. I had some sunflower seeds kind of lying around. And, and those sunflowers, some of them were, you know, these mammoth, I think they call them, and they're 10 feet tall. And Oh, wow. At, oh, they're beautiful. And at the end of the season, you know, these goldfinches, other birds too, but goldfinches get on them mm. and they just eat them and they send the seeds everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. <laughs> so one of the beautiful kind of entanglements of the garden is that, you know, those flowers grow up and then the goldfinches plant them all over the place. So now this time of year, my job is to replant the, you know, to transplant them, to, you know, I dig see, them yeah. up and put them where I want them. Kind of marshalling and, some flowers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's like this total collaboration. Um, they, they do the hard work for me. And, um, the birds and, <laughs> but I was just planting, replanting them kind of where I wanted them to be. And, you know, when you transplant plants often, you may or may not know this, but when you transplant them, they, they look, you know, weird. you know, I don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> you will know this. You will know this. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> they look kind of weary. So I have that feeling that maybe you have like often when I'm gardening, <laughs> which is like, Oh no, I think maybe I just killed these transplants. You know, I just killed these yeah. sunflowers and then, you know, water them a little bit. And then, you know, Four hours later, they're like standing up and they're happy and they're they're ready to go. So anyway, that's like that's actually one of the feelings that I noticed this year as I was gardening. That although you know I'm, I've been gardening for 15 years, so I'm I'm basically a baby gardener. You know, I'm 47. I started when I was like, <laughs> but almost every time um, I plant stuff, I still am like when it comes up, I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> how, is this, how is this possible? You know, even though I know that's a, that's just what it does. That's, a, you know, that's, that's the beginning, but I, we, we can go on and on. No, I mean, please do. And I keep asking gardeners about gardening because I feel like one day something's going to go into my head that explains to me why, like, why I kill everything so thoroughly. I think... <laughs> no, I think here's one, one <laughs> Please one tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I wonder what... It sounds like you have bindweed. Oh, so much all. bindweed. Yeah. Okay. And, and cooch grass as well. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I'm finding, like, trying to figure out more and more what grows well, you know, what just mm. grows well without a lot of, um, you know, intervention or tending. Yeah. And, you know, that it sounds like... That isn't bindweed. So that's one thing, you know, which is also like a kind of yeah. patient relationship to the garden. Yeah, that does make sense. And I also think that I think two things I think one my dog digs everything up which is not my fault I killed things before I had a dog but uh, now the dog is not contributing <laughs> frankly <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think my bigger problem is I kind of like the weeds I can't I just they come up and I kind of think oh it's a shame to take that away it looks so happy there <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> over empathizing yeah. with the weeds I think is is one of my gardening woes and then obviously they take over and kill all the stuff <laughs> I've planted and I, there's a little bit of me that still thinks oh well maybe they're meant to be there it's bad mm -hmm. I need deprogramming <laughs> <laughs> sounds reasonable to me sounds reasonable well yeah but I I mean I find plants really fascinating yeah. and I just want to watch them grow and see what they do and I I'm really I'm always really enchanted with plants that my friend has taught me to call them volunteers that just yeah. appear in your garden and want to be there and grow like I I just think they've got a right that I can't disrupt <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also they also have a knowing, you know, that's the other thing. It's like sort of to, you know, interact with that knowledge in a kind mm. of, um, you know, like I was going to say non-impositional way, but like in a way that's, sort of, you know, more collaborative. So actually like really kind of wondering with the garden, like what wants to grow here as opposed to like, you know, I want this to grow here. Um, that can, that can be a, you know, that can be a struggle. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the language of gardening is, is the language of war. (laughs) And it's, and it's, it's just like, what if we put that aside? You know, what if we put that aside? And they're kind of like, huh, well, I wonder what, you know, clearly you thrive here. Like what else might thrive here? Yeah. And I, there's a great kind of, I mean, I think it's true in America too, but this great British obsession with the lawn, like having yeah. this great big expanse of short grass. Yeah, totally. And I can't engage with that. Like I don't, I don't find it interesting and I don't know what to do on grass and yeah. I'm a seaside person and I don't want to cut it. I actually, I mean, let's, let's add another aspect to why my garden doesn't grow. I'm really lazy. I hate, the, I hate the work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, mm, I, th- yeah. I think we're learning a lot here. Do you spend a lot of time though? I mean, does it take take a lot of your time? And it, I presume that's positive for you. Well, I like being in the garden, but I'm also like the more I learn how to garden, the more I'm sort of like realizing how much I actually want to be like working in the garden. I often think this, like if I was to make my living as a as a farmer, what would I grow? And I think I would grow things like garlic and sweet potatoes and, mm. you know, potatoes and things that have a kind of one big harvest time that you kind of manage for a little bit and then they kind of take care of themselves. And I'm, you know, the more I kind of learn how I am, I realize that is, that is part of my pace too. Like, I don't like to, I don't actually like to have to do stuff every single day. Yeah. That really bothers me too. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, you know, there are plenty of things to grow and, and I love growing those things that, (laughs) you know, to some extent, it's like you put them in, you kind of make sure they take, okay. And then you kind of, all right, we're going to check in with you periodically and make sure you're watered, but you're going to take care of yourself. You know? Yeah. Okay. I, I feel like maybe, maybe I might do better this year, but I've left it too late already. I presume. I, yeah, that's big sigh. Um. <laughs> Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. I want to ask about the context in which you're writing 
about delight and about loveliness and happiness and all those very simple pleasures. Because yours isn't a book that's like, you must be blindly optimistic. You know, you must be grateful for everything. You must just see the good side. Everything's fine. Everything's going to turn out. Like there's a, there's a real undercurrent of dark things happening behind it, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting when I hear even the word like optimistic or hope with my with this book, I think I understand that that response mm. um, because I think it probably feels for other people it, it offers. I'm just realizing this now. It might offer other people, maybe readers, a kind of sense of optimism or hope. But I don't think this book, the way I think of those terms, that this book doesn't isn't really actually interested in that. Yeah, this book is actually interested in attending to the day to day you know, the day-to-day care we're in the midst of, or, you know, Mm. variations of that. So it's kind of like, you know, the premise of the book is like, yeah, it's fucked. (laughs) Shit's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Of course, you know, (laughs) no doubt. (laughs) And, And there will periodically be, actually in this new book, I'm in this new book two of the Book of Delights, I find myself wanting to respond to that a little bit because periodically people will sort of be under the impression that, that, how to say this, like to some extent, I think maybe it is like they, they so badly want the book just to be a happy book. Right. And I'm like, read the essays. <laughs> yeah. Read you wouldn't have to read very far. Yeah. You don't have to read very far. And you know, it's talking about there is the horror and there is the bloom, you know, mm-hmm. and they do not, they do not exist separate from one another, at least in yeah. my, you know, in my grown-up life. And it's kind of interesting, as I said, I was sort of thinking the grown-upness. It feels like a grown-up thing. Like I have that this essay on joy in the book. Yeah. And actually this this new book I have coming out in October, it's a kind of expansion in a way of that consideration that happens in that essay. Mm. It's sort of like how does it's a childish endeavor to imagine that we can just be happy. <laughs> Put it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Grown people know you're not, it's not all just happy. That's just like being grown. And it's funny because like, I feel like part of that, I'm making a connection here that I don't quite know how to make, but because we started talking a little bit about how the enthusiasm, the tamping down of enthusiasm and maybe even delight that comes with growing up is this on this one side. It's a kind of, you tamp down a kind of relationship to, you know, a full life, a full life to become a grown up. But it's also a quality of being a grown up to have a full life to be like, yeah, I know it's terrible and it's wonderful. Mm. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that's how it is. Like the, and in a in a way, it's sort of the enthusiasm or the close looking or the paying attention. It's it's being able to attend to the sorrow and it's also being able to attend what flummoxes us with delight. You know, they are not, yeah. they are not, they are not mutually exclusive. And it feels what to is- be like childish to imagine that they are, and mm. also um you know, it makes sense for a kind of dumb consumer culture (laughs) Yeah, because then you could buy a thing that will make you happy. Yeah. I think there's something about full humanity in like, both. actually, I think it's something we've both got in common in our work that we're thinking about bringing your full humanity to the fore, like the, the light and the shade and how that is completely interconnected and not in any way separable and and that it's not even desirable to separate it because the pleasure of the the joyful bits reside in that background of knowing exactly 
what life's like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I increasingly realise that this obsession with happiness as like a, a separate strata that we're supposed to like isolate off and seek is such a, a Western 20th century invention. Like even my grandparents would not have recognised this concept that it was attainable in a in a pure sense and, and wouldn't have found it an interesting idea almost. Like we've got here very recently and I think we're realising pretty quickly that it's not a, an attainable goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that um, you said the word gratitude too. And I think the word to me, the word gratitude implies the the full the full grown up understanding. Yeah, you know that of both the profound heartbreak mm. um, that is just that it's just part of being a creature, you know. And gratitude is sort of and yet, you know, there are trees literally making it possible for me to breathe. <laughs> that is, you know, there are there are there are literally creatures that a kind of conventional way of knowing would say are discreet from me inside of my body at this moment, making it possible for me to live. If that, if they go away, I will die. And a practice of gratitude, I think is, Mm. is serious. It is grave. It is understanding. It is understanding, you know, hard to be grateful (laughs) Yeah, yeah, when you don't, you know, when you don't have some kind of relationship to the sorrow. Mm. And I, I think the thing that I resent about it, because yeah, like feeling gratitude is a huge part of what I do every single day. What I really resent is the constant entreaty to tell other people to feel grateful. Like I, I feel like that's something you have to come to by yourself and that actually it's not an instruction. (laughs) It's, it's got to be authentically felt. It's got to be traveled to almost. Yeah. 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 Often, so often that kind of grateful, the compulsion to gratitude or being compelled to gratitude. So often Mm. it's being told by people who could, you know, evict you. Yeah. 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 It's a power relationship. It's a power relationship. Yeah. Mm. That's, and that's a, that's a completely different thing. And it's all, you know, it's very off. It's a weaponized thing. And so when I'm talking about, I'm not talking about that, you know, I'm talking about this actual thing that understands that we're, we're profoundly entangled. We're profoundly Mm. entangled and it's by, you know, the generosity of the earth. That's, that's who I'm always sort of, you know, the earth, you know, of which we are all a sort of, you know, expression of. Which grows things for you and not for me. Yeah. But you probably ate today too. So it grew yes, I did. All of us, you know. <laughs> um, and that's the kind of gratitude. That's what I'm talking about when I say yeah. gratitude. You know, you know, it's funny. I have this this essay in this in this new book, and it's kind of talking about gratitude. And it's talking precisely about the thing you just said about the the what I would call a kind of brutal compulsion to feel mm. grateful, effectively to feel grateful that we have not killed you. <laughs> To feel grateful that we didn't drive a, we didn't put a, you know, a highway through your, through your neighborhood. Mm. You should feel grateful we still let you live, even though, you know, there's, you know, lead in the water, et cetera, et cetera. This essay in the book is sort of acknowledging that and being like, we're not talking about that. Yeah. We're talking about this other thing. My uh, next book, uh, which is coming out next year, it started off as a book about humility. And I was really interested in the concept of like developing a sense of humility and how nourishing it is to feel humble. But I had to stop writing it because the more I dug into it, the more angry 
my own subject matter made me mm-hmm. because it it was just abundantly clear that humility had so often been weaponized against other groups like it was something that we like particularly as like white westerners i guess kind of praised other people for having mm-hmm. in in what was actually the most condescending way possible you know like we admired the humility of gandhi because ultimately we felt like he didn't cause too much trouble you know like he didn't he didn't kind of harm us so like we we were willing to admire that whereas we're critical of people who stepped up and said no actually I'm really furious with you and I'm going to do something you know really direct about it um and I got totally tangled up in it and I had to I had to stop writing about it because I, I ultimately felt like actually it wasn't my story to tell that that actually there's a whole hidden history here of the way we've demanded positive sentiment from other groups mm-hmm. um, without ever applying it back to ourselves, you know, and and we've seen it as admirable from a distance without really feeling an obligation to equally take it on. And I feel like the gratitude conversation we've got to recently in, in like the mainstream has often touched in that place as well for me Mm. yeah totally totally it's funny the word humility it's interesting that word you know the etymology of it i'm pretty sure is the the soil yeah of the soil yeah and it's funny in that in your first sentence you said you said humility and you said doug um both of them you know soil metaphors and Mm. i i think there's something there's something like a true humility i think I want, I'm just sort of wondering, like in relationship to the kind of um, yeah question of gratitude, like humility to be, to recognize that we are of the soil or something. That's yeah, exactly. Course. That's kind of, that's a kind of a recognition of, again, the word entanglement or a recognition exactly. of, yeah. you know, rootedness, mm. rootedness, beautiful. Mm. And mm. the kind of compulsion to be, or being compelled to be humble is not that it's not no, that it's effectively no, yeah. saying you're from the soil and, and I'm not we, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thing. yeah it's that kind of thing yeah and I I think there's also something about the practice of humility oh god like I I'm having this conversation now instead of writing a book about it but um <laughs> forgive me <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's about recognizing that you are exactly the same as everybody else like that you're no, and that, and part of that is not being any worse too, like not punishing yourself harder for transgressions that you'd forgive of other people or that you'd actually find endearing in other people. You know, like, oh, I, I spilt my glass of milk and I'm going to berate myself for the next five hours about it. Whereas if your friends spilt their glass of milk, you'd be like, oh, don't worry, I'll get a cloth, that's fine. And so humility, it works in the opposite direction as well, that there's a sense that sometimes we're being too humble, like falsely humble, and and we're punishing ourselves and taking ourselves lower than than where the equilibrium is supposed to be. It's a a really complex idea when you start to look at it closely. Yeah, I love that. I love that Mm. so much. That that kind of like possibility for tenderness. I mean, when you say that, like a I was just having that feeling the other day, like, (laughs) you know, that I was getting on myself about something that if exactly how you said, if someone else had, had uh, done it, I would have been like, how sweet, you know? (laughs) Uh, And yeah, that kind of self, like being tenderness, being, being tender Mm. uh, 
to yourself. To yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. funny. That ends up being kind of one of these things. It shows up in, in the book of the lights a bit. And I think it's partly like, I don't know what it is. If it's like getting a little older or something and just sort of being like, golly, like you have spent <laughs> so much time really, mm-hmm. really kind of berating yourself and judging yeah. yourself and being unforgiving. And, and what a waste that is. What a waste. What yeah. a waste. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's actually going kind to of talk about the sort of periodically sorrowful delights. It feels like the occasionally in there, it'll be the case that I sort of recognize like, oh, that's been a lot of energy. What, what a relief to notice that maybe you don't have to do that. Yeah. Maybe you don't it's, have to do that. And that's a very bittersweet feeling, isn't it? Because that sense that we, that like loads of us, so many of us just waste huge swathes of our life in like this obsession with why we're not getting everything exactly right. And I, I know I've done it. My God, I really, yeah. <laughs> wow, I've committed some, if I'd committed the hours to that, that I, you know, committed right. to, I don't know if I, if I approached my learning of Spanish on Duolingo with quite the same right. fervor, I would be great at it by now. <laughs> <laughs> However, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Mm. That's right. But that puts me in mind of, I think, one of my favourite parts of your book, which is right towards the end um, when you're moisturising your shins. (laughs) And it struck me really hard as something I'd not heard a man write about before. Not the act of like moisturising, but the sensual experience of being in a male body in a way that isn't violent or aggressive or sexualized unnecessarily or hard, you know, the softness of being male. Like, we don't hear about that. I know, I know, I know. It's such a sorrow that that's Mm. a kind of, uh, that we don't hear about that, you know, and that we're often compelled not to express it or, yeah, to, Mm. to withhold that very obvious part of ourselves. Yeah. What a loss. What a loss. And also what a, like part of the loss I think is, is like a requires that we inflict all kinds of, you know, damage on other people. Mm, Yeah. mm, You know, mm. when you can be like, Hey, I'm soft, I'm tender, I'm hurting. I'm in my, in my experience anyway, that, that helps me not, you know, do the, not defend, not defend. And in defending, you know, um, being all the other things, stupid and violent and brutal. Yeah. And not building a wall against other people's hardness yeah. that then creates your own hardness. I think that's the hardest act to pull off in adult life, actually, is, is refusing to harden no matter what that's goes it. on. That's it. And part of that, that thing of like growing up, of like sort of pulling into our kind of like, you know, mastering the world mm-hmm. and losing wonder, losing enthusiasm, like giving away those things to kind of, you know, to sort of pretend a kind of enoughness or something is, it is a kind of hardening. It's a hardening. And it's like, it's so sad. It's so Mm. sad. And it does, it feels like such a relief when we can let that crack a little bit, you know. I'm inclined to read that essay. Is that, is that, it's not that long. Do you do that at all? Yeah. 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 Why not? Have you got it? I have it. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I love the sound of pages being shuffled through the, through the ether. <laughs> That's a delightful thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's called Cocoa Baby. Mm. I caught sight of myself this morning in the mirror applying coconut oil to my body. I was bent over with one foot on the edge of the tub, 
rubbing the oil into my calves, which have become a particularly ashen part of my body, particularly visibly ashen, as it's summer, which I'm trying to address with a loofah and the oil, abundantly applied. If you want to get way further into this, and I think you do, I recommend Simone White's essay, Lotion, in her book of Being Dispersed. This time of year, I am mostly brown, except for the stretch from my waist to my mid-thighs, which is a lighter shade, neither of them to be compared to a food or coffee drink. With my leg up like this, bent over, my testicles swaying just beneath my pale thigh, I can't help but interrupt myself. I got to interrupt myself for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I once made the interesting choice to read this essay at a a huge kind of poetry festival where there were like... (laughs) I don't know, there might've been 800 high school children in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And I swear to you, I don't know what, uh, I think, you know, because I think the the spirit, as as you'll know, when we get to the, I mean, as your listeners will know, when we get to the end of the essay, (laughs) is the right spirit. But these like 16 year old kids, like when I said testicles, they were like, no! Oh, I bet that was a great moment. I bet that was a delight in itself. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was wonderful for me, but they were like, uh-uh. <laughs> I don't know if they're ever going to read another thing. Love that. Uh, Continue. <laughs> my leg up like this, bent over, my testicles swaying just beneath my pale thigh. Ah, sorry. Do that sentence again. I just knocked something okay, off yeah. the table. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Your pencil was like, ah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) With my leg up like this, bent over, my testicles swaying just beneath my pale thigh, I wondered if whenever I'm in this position, which is often oiling, cutting toenails, I will always think of Toy Derricotte's poem in The Undertaker's Daughter, where as a child, she walks in on her abusive father standing more or less just like this, though he's shaving. Seeing his testicles dangling like that, she thinks they're his udders. As she writes, the female part he hid, something soft and unprotected I shouldn't see. I watched myself rub the oil liberally on my body while I was still wet, which my dear friend recently taught me to keep some of the moisture in. I got my calves, then my feet, lacing my fingers into my toes. When doing this, I often recall another friend who, watching me put lotion on my feet one day, smiled and said, good job. Up to my thighs, inner and outer, around my ass which seems to want to break out some when I'm sitting too much. Then I get both arms and shoulders, my chest and stomach, and what I can reach in my back. Usually I oil my face with the residual oil on my hands and finish by oiling my penis. Not always last, but often, which I wouldn't read into too much, one way or the other. Today when I watched myself, particularly when I was oiling my chest and stomach, which I do kind of by self-hugging, I was thinking, How many bodies of mine are in this body, this nearly 43-year-old body stationed on this plane for the briefest? I could see, as I always can, probably kind of dysmorphically, my biggest body when it was 260 pounds and a battering ram and felt sort of impervious. I could also see my 12-year-old self, chubby and gangly and ashamed. And of course, the baby me, who I don't remember being, though I have seen pictures. When you watch yourself in the mirror oiling yourself like this, wrapping your arms around yourself, jostling yourself a little, it is easy or easier to see yourself as a child and maybe even a child you really love. It is easy if you decide it, which might be hard, to let the oiling be of the baby you, 
or at least I thought so today, looking at myself, whom I am so often not nice to. But the baby you, you oil until he shines. Oh, that's so perfect. Thank you so much. And I, I have to say, I love that my first male guest managed to talk about his penis and his testicles. I feel like we've done the whole thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like I've achieved the full cycle now and I've done it and I'm feeling really good about it. <laughs> Ross, thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure to meet you and to have you on the podcast. I'm so thrilled you said yes. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. It's it's really great to talk to you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. Well, I'm standing here and I am, I will admit, I'm getting slightly wet now. But I don't mind. But I'm looking at my tree, my only fruit tree in my garden. I have a very small garden. And when I first moved in, I planted a green gauge tree because I wanted a tree. I couldn't have a big tree, but I also wanted something that I could pick fruit from. And green gauges seem to me to be very essentially Kentish, really. They're a small green plum, but they're intensely sweet. And you don't see them in the supermarkets very often. You sometimes see them in the greengrocers. But they're actually, as it turns out, thunder's still going. Oh, it's a good one. It must be nearly right overhead now. They're actually quite hard to grow, the green gauges. They, um, it took 10 years for my tree to fruit. And now it's fruiting every year. I've learnt to feed it with seaweed feed and it seems to help it a lot. And it actually grows like crazy, this tree. I had it pruned by someone else last year because I was too scared to do it myself. And already it's looking really straggly. It seems to have a lot of determination to get on with the business of producing fruit. And I think I've got a great crop this year. They're small at the moment, but they're all over the branches. And the trick with green gauges is to not catch them too late. They go off really quickly and the wasps get them. So I'm going to be keeping a close eye on them this year. I might make some jam, you never know, some really good green jam. Anyway, that's today's delight. And of course, the thunder. And a bit of lightning, but less lightning than thunder, without a doubt. I think it's beginning to pass now because you can hear the seagulls coming up in the air again. They seem to know when it's all over. They're really good predictors of a storm because they're coming from the sea. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I just wanted to say thank you to Ross again for making the time to chat to me. As a man without a... Uh, iPhone, smartphone, I should say. He gives me the sense that maybe he's not too bothered about getting onto podcasts and people's Instagram feeds and all the things that I fuss over in my daily life. So I was really, really chuffed when he said yes. And thank you to all the people who suggested him to me and who said that I really must make him my very first male guest there will be more. I need to keep up the habit. I'm actually going to be taking a little break over the summer 
もうさんだ<笑> I hope no one here is not enjoying the thunder I'm going to be taking a little break over the summer from producing new episodes just for a few weeks just to rest and reset I'm going to be visiting America for the first time since wintering came out so、um, I'm hoping to maybe see some of you there I'll let you know about anything I'm doing oh the rain's getting harder now、uh, and I'm also running my first retreat which you may well have heard about but if not do have a look on my website to learn more about it Uh, and all of those things are going to be keeping me really busy. And in fact, it just gave me the opportunity to do something that I've wanted to do for ages, which is to put some of my earlier episodes into the very able hands of producer Buddy to kind of remaster them a bit and to get them back into shape.、Uh, because I produced the first series and you can really hear the difference. My guests were amazing and I feel like I didn't do them all justice. So I'm hoping for, you know, some slightly crisper versions. And maybe for those of you that have only started listening more recently, there'll be a really nice surprise because there's some awesome people back there in the past. Thank you as ever. To Megan and to Buddy for looking after the podcast so well, and to my Patreons. This month, they have been formulating questions for all kinds of interesting people, including Susan Kane, which I think they really enjoyed. And we also had a lovely live QA about living a creative life, which made me dig so deep to think about how I think about my own practice and how to make it sustainable. I think I get way more out of this experience than they do. Ah, the robin has come to see me in the green gauge tree now, which feels like a lovely time to say goodbye. Because he and I are buddies now, we're mates, and、uh, I've got some bonding to do. I'll see you all really soon. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.